This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And to all of my Orthodox Christian listeners, Christos Anesti. Alithos Anesti, Christ is risen, indeed he is risen, Kalo Pascha, happy Easter. And once again, I'm coming to you from my home studio in Thornhill, north of Toronto. I've, I've moved out of my studio beneath the stairs, temporarily, uh, and into the boys' classroom. I'm also hosting Coast to Coast AM from home, uh, so that involves a few more pieces of equipment, and I need more room. So, uh, as I mentioned last night on Coast, you may actually hear the rumbling of a distant train. Uh, we are about 200 meters from a CN track, Canadian national track, that moves a lot of freight east to west. Uh, in fact, this is, I believe, the busiest or one of the busiest CN rail corridors in Canada. But, you know, after living here for, for a number of years, I, I no longer really notice it. Uh, you, may, you may or may not hear it. But I actually, I love the sound of steel wheels on steel track and the haunting sound of a distant train horn. It's very comforting. Uh, Carlos, Carlos Cagini, Carlos Cagini uh, is my technical producer and Ryan White is the live stream producer. And we are streaming live on uh, our YouTube channel, Strange Planet, this evening. Uh, before we get rolling. I want to give a big thanks to our Star Chamber patrons, Denny Bladell and Kirk Shamel. Uh, and um, they've been just just awesome over really the last year and a uh, year and a half, maybe. Very supportive. If you want to become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com slash strange planet. Also, congrats to this month's Patreon draw winner. Uh, this is where we award some Strange Planet merch. To one lucky Patreon supporter, and this month it's Rodney Estrada, or Estrada, Rodney Estrada of Phoenix, Arizona. There'll be a mug, a Strange Planet mug, coming your way very soon, Rodney. Thank you so much for your support. Roswell investigators Tom Carey and Dom Schmidt are here in Hour One. They've put together a very impressive 
beautiful uh, new book for you Roswell UFO fans. It's a coffee table pictorial book, Roswell, the chronological pictorial. It came out last month and we'll discuss some of the most important aspects of the Roswell timeline with the two premier Roswell investigators in the world. In the second hour, Preston Dennett returns to the program. He was with me on Coast last night discussing some of the 15 cases in his new book, On Board UFO Encounters. And we had some very uh, remarkable and emotional calls last night from some alleged abductees that are, who are really, really struggling uh, with what they believe happened to them. In the annals of American UFO history, few incidents have inspired as much fascination, speculation as the one in Roswell, New Mexico. It began, of course, in the summer of 1947 at the dawn of the Cold War when the U.S. Army Air Forces sent out a shocker of a press release announcing they'd recovered a flying disc from a ranch near Roswell. More than 70 years later, this incident remains a defining aspect of the area's identity. Of course, the town boasts a UFO museum and a research center, a flying saucer-inspired uh, McDonald's, alien-themed streetlights, even an extraterrestrial family stranded in a broken-down UFO on the side of State Route 285. I guess they're looking for a jump start. Uh, but behind all the UFO mania lies an uneasy truth. The events that transpired that summer are anything but clear-cut with admitted cover-ups and conflicting explanations. It was a saucer. It was a spycraft. It was a weather balloon. It was the Soviets. Tom Carey has a bachelor degree in business administration from Temple University, a master's degree in anthropology from California State University, Sacramento, and he's also received a fellowship to pursue a PhD in anthropology here in, in uh, the University of Toronto. He became interested in UFOs while in high school, rekindled that interest in 1986 when he became the MUFON State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania. Since 1991, Tom's research has focused solely on the so-called Roswell incident that occurred near the town of Roswell in July 47. Tom also became a special investigator for CUFOs, C-U-F-Os, uh, the late uh, J, J, J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, and in 1992 served on its board of directors uh, from 1997 through 2001. He, Tom has appeared as a guest on numerous radio and TV shows concerning Roswell, and we're delighted to have Thomas Carey back on The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Thomas, how are you? Nice to be with you, Richard. And uh, Donald R. Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. Prior to that, he was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek for the International UFO Reporter. Don graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. He's the author of dozens of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of a number of best-selling books, UFO Crush at Roswell and the truth about the UFO crash at Roswell. Presently, he's a contributing writer for UFO Magazine and on the board of directors for the International UFO Research Museum. Don Schmidt, welcome back to, to the uh, Conspiracy Show. How are you, sir? Great to be back with you, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Thank you both. Congratulations. This is a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, I don't know. 
how to say this, but I'm just, let me ask you, is, is this for you guys sort of the icing on the cake? Is this <laughs> the, the last, you know, UFO Roswell? The icing, there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a layer cake. It's a layer cake. There is another one right after this. <laughs> uh, Richard, we've, uh, we've written three books, uh, in the last year and a half, uh, <laughs> I spent most of the day going over the uh, the one we, we uh, that came out last year called uh, UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're t- and uh, the book we're talking about tonight came it came out last month in uh, 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 I lost track in March. Yes, and then we wrote another one. It's called uh, Roswell, the ultimate cold case file closed, thinking that would be the, you know, that would, and that will, that will come out June 1st of this year. So we thought, well, that, there you go. You know, that's, that's it. And uh, we, if, you know, thinking about it, uh, we had one chapter in that book that's coming out that we said, hey, I think that, you know, maybe we could do a whole book on that chapter. And so uh, that possibly is another book that will probably come out next year. So uh, the book we're talking about tonight, uh, well, you know, we can do it. Well, it was an idea that we had, and uh, really it was a, a joy to put it together. It's sort of the uh, our complete investigation covering the Roswell case from its inception in 1947 all the way through to the present. And we have over 400 photographic images in it. It's a, it's a coffee table book. And uh, the, uh, you, usually you have the uh, images uh, supplement the text. But in this particular book, the text supplements the images. And uh, right. it's a total timeline. Yes, for for me, it's it's the perfect primer for let's say the 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 person who has heard of Roswell. They may not know um, all of the details, but it's a great way for the let's say the casual Roswell UFO student to really uh, verse themselves in the, in the details. But and then also for the the diehard Roswell UFO uh, fans, if I can use that term, it's just a it's a great collector item because it's it's such a beautiful book. Well, and and also because even for Tom and myself, it truly has cemented the case as to you know the the ultimate you know UFO case of all time. And that as the book presents it minute by minute, you know hour by hour, day by day, and it's allowed us to go back and wrestle with the timeline, wrestle with events, fill in gaps. Uh, you know, go back, and Tom was wonderful as far as uh, even one of the last trips down to Roswell and being able to pinpoint exactly, for example, where Mac Brazel, that very rancher, was abducted by the military. We thought it was at one location, and then uh, just by retracing his footsteps and where he was at that time, and it makes perfect sense. We plug it into the timeline. And, and, and so for us, too, it was, as Tom said, it was a joy in that 
you, you, you look at it, you come back, and you go, my God, what else could this have been just by the reaction all the way to the Pentagon, all the way to Washington, because they were treating this as though World War III had started. Right, right. Um, I want to just mention something that, I've, that uh, is in the acknowledgments, and you thank one of the, uh, the researchers who was going over the weather data and old weather forecasts that allowed you to pinpoint the actual date of the crash, maybe even more than the date, almost right down to the, uh, the hour. Uh, tell me about that, how the weather data and forecasts helped you pinpoint the date of the crash. Well, uh, witnesses uh, early on in the investigation told us that they had uh, uh, heard of, uh, that there was a thunder, a terrific thunderstorm. This is the monsoon season down in uh, New Mexico in July. Heavy rain. Um, uh, heavy thunder and lightning, sometimes even thunder and lightning uh, and no rain, but these huge uh, thunderclaps. And several witnesses uh, in the Corona area uh, reported hearing something different uh, between the thunderclaps. It sounded like a muffled ex- explosion. And uh, it was, rain- again, raining heavily that night. And uh, But they all pinpointed this uh, explosion that they heard uh, during a severe thunder and lightning storm. So uh, over the years, we had come to different conclusions as to what was the date of this uh, particular explosion. You know, it started out July the 2nd, uh, 1947, because of uh, a witness in Roswell named uh, Wilmot, who owned a big uh, uh, hardware store there saw a flying saucer uh, go over Roswell the night of the July the 2nd. And then uh, later on, I think in uh, Don and Kevin Randall's second book, uh, they pinpointed it as the evening of July the 4th, based on someone else's testimony. But an associate of ours, uh, David Rudiak, who lives in California, he did some uh, very uh, in-depth research of the weather weather you know, weather weather patterns <laughs> in the uh, central high desert of New Mexico for that week and there was only one day or one you know one day that there was uh, any uh rainstorm uh showing in the, in the weather data and it was the uh, the night of July the 2nd uh, 1947 it was the only date that uh, uh, it, uh, this weather data showed a thunder and lightning storm in central uh, high uh, New Mexico. So that's that's how we pinpointed the date. You also have uh, Corona rancher Gene Cole in the book. It's nice because, uh, you know, I've, re- I've read these names and so forth, but now I'm actually putting faces to names uh, which is which is quite nice, which is important for people. These are these were these are human beings. Uh, you know, they're just not case files and so forth. But uh, Jean Cole, you say she also heard the craft circling over her ranch house sounding like it was in trouble prior to exploding. Tell me about Jean. Well, we interviewed her and uh, she lived in the Corona area rancher. And she said she heard it, uh, this thing, you know, again, it's this thunderstorm, but she heard a device circling her 
her ranch overhead. And uh, I thought I, I, I could be mixing her up now with another witness, but I thought she said it, <laughs> it sounded like a lawnmower <laughs> in trouble. But uh, she heard it circling uh, overhead, and uh, then she heard it go off, and a, f- a few seconds later she heard this explosion. So, you know, you put two and two together, and it's during a thunderstorm. We know the night of the it was July the 2nd, and uh, the explosion. And uh, as you said, uh, one of the features of the book is we put uh, faces to names, and places you see, you see where things happened. You see uh, who it happened to. It uh, the book puts the reader almost in into the case. You, it it brings the case to life for the reader. Right. And, and right. Uh, we have her picture there, and uh, that was her story. She heard it overhead, and then that she heard a few seconds later, uh, further in the distance, uh, an explosion, the, the so-called muffled explosion. So the crash the, the evening of the, sorry go ahead yes the witnesses in Roswell like William Woody and there were there was personnel at the Roswell Army Airfield there were some nuns there was a free, uh, former uh, nun by the name of Day who informed us that she had seen a diary entry talking about what appeared to be a uh, meteor uh, or a shooting star but it was glowing red and an arc downward north of Roswell. They weren't able to give us a precise evening, but tying all that into that July 2nd weather uh, documentation from the Stallion uh, Weather t- uh, Network at that time that Dr. Rudiak uh, provided us, uh, we've, we're very confident that we can nail that July 2nd late evening down as the official night of the crash. Uh, for years, there was some speculation as to whether it may have been the radar installations the air in, in the area that somehow caused some interference with the craft's navigation system. Um, others have suggested lightning. Have you have you ruled out radar, or are you are you convinced that it was lightning that brought it down? Well, one of the things that we learned through the course of the investigation that uh, wasn't even evident because there's no indication such a facility was there. There was a radar tracking station in Vaughan, New Mexico, which is just 45 minutes from the crash site, the debris field. And then to the southwest at White Sands, Proving Grounds, you had probably the most sophisticated radar facility in the world at that time and mainly because they were conducting all the uh, rocket testing of the captured German V-2s from the war. So all the other radar systems at that time simply tracked incoming. You had aircraft that were approaching, arriving at a base at a facility, and you would be tracked coming in. White Sands had radar that also tracked outgoing, departing aircraft. That's again. They were. Uh, they had the, the the state of the art for that time, and I think a number of our colleagues and other researchers have tried to create a triangulation between the different radar lobes 
from Kirtland up in Albuquerque. I mentioned Vaughn, and then White Sands, and then even in Roswell at that time. And those radar lobes, as they circle around those areas, guess where they all happen to intersect? Lincoln Corona. Around Corona. Ah. Mm-hmm. So that's where they came up with the theory that um, maybe the radar created some interference with the craft, causing it to have a malfunction. Tom and I, though, tend to uh, accept and side more with the, the notion that because of the severe lightning storm, that it's more likely that the storm had something to do with the crash. Uh we're, we're approaching a break here in about two minutes. I just wanted to comment on the map of the debris field, which is uh, in Roswell, the chronological pictorial. Uh, Thomas Carey, Don Schmidt, my guests and uh, co-authors. Uh, how did you piece that together? The, uh, the, it's a very detailed, speci- very precise map of the debris field. Yeah, is that, you're talking about the schematic? Um. Well, it's 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 a rendering of uh, I don't know if I would be call it a schematic, but it's um, yeah, you know it's I, an. I, I believe uh, Don could address that uh, better than yeah, I. I a, think it came from QFOS, the uh, Center for UFO Yeah, that was a drawing that I, think, uh, I did. Was put together by the them. First, and yeah, the first uh, archaeological just, dig that we did in September of 1989, and based on the eyewitness testimonies, and then that first dig where we laid out a systematic grid and we mapped out the site for future archaeological work then uh, we created that map of the uh, the actual uh, expanse of the debris field from the upper pinnacle at the northwest and then moving to the east-southeast about nine-tenths of a mile and how it had that fan pattern we had uh, as described by witnesses a gouge from the upper pinnacle that extended uh, a few hundred feet. So all of that is based on eyewitness firsthand testimony. And so that's why even for that, uh, uh, for that purpose, back in 1989, we were able to uh, even get out into the field and start looking for physical evidence. All right. We, uh, we, have we will have another map oh. uh, or schematic of uh, uh, shows the state of New Mexico and the flight path that uh, highlights the, the so-called debris field site, which is the major site where all the little pieces of wreckage came down when the ship exploded. It highlights the uh, what we call the Deep Proctor body site, where uh, uh, Deep Proctor, uh, a neighbor's uh, boy who was with Mac uh, Brazel the day they found the wreckage, uh, uh, reported that that's where Mac found something else we believe was two bodies. And then it shows the final or the third site, the uh, so-called what we call the impact site, where the remains of the ship, the inner cabin or a capsule of some sort, came to rest much closer to Roswell. All right, we'll take a quick time out, gentlemen. Back with uh, more of my discussion with Tom Carey, Don Schmidt, Roswell, the timeline right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. 
Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour, UFO paranormal researcher Preston Dennett. He's uh, very prolific. He's got another book out. This one is Onboard UFO Encounters, 15 never-before-published uh, case studies. And uh, I mentioned earlier, I was uh, Preston was with me on Coast last night, and we had some callers toward the tail end of the program, very emotional uh, from some alleged abductees. Uh, it was very, very moving. Uh, Thomas Carey and Don Schmidt stay with us. And uh, Roswell, the chronological pictorial is now available. If you have even a passing interest in the Roswell UFO incident, you got to get yourself get yourself a copy. It's just a just a beautiful book. And um, we'll tell you how to get a copy in uh, here towards the tail end of the hour. Uh, uh, Tom, you were talking about the the Deep Proctor site, which is the the probable location where uh, Mac Brazel uh, said he saw, quote, end quote, something else. And that something else were, were humanoid bodies, two small uh, humanoid bodies. Um, when Mac Brazel was apprehended by the authorities where did they take him after he discovered the debris field took it to see the sheriff they called the uh, the roswell army air force field uh where did they take brazel and and what happened to him during that time well he spent most of his time in the guest house uh which is located right as you enter the base uh, it's not there anymore it's been torn down but fortunately we got we got pictures of it be- before uh, long before it was torn down, so it w- uh, which I might point out that a lot of the things that are in the book uh, no longer exist. They, uh, they have uh, been removed or torn down and have disappeared to history, but uh, we have captured them uh, for the book prior to their, their demise. But uh, uh, Mac Brazel was uh, taken into custody, they found him uh, w- once they realized what the crash represented the uh, the fact that it was an extraterrestrial craft with uh, little bodies about five of them well four were dead and one was still alive once they realized uh-oh we've got really got something here they said where's the, where's that rancher and uh, they found him at a uh, local coffee shop, uh, which we finally identified for the for this book, uh, we always thought it was down near the base, but it's uh, in town. And uh, they uh, took him back to the base and kept him at the base hospital, where they really worked him over. And uh, they, they trying to get convince him basically that he didn't see what he thought he saw namely all this wreckage and these little bodies. And uh, when that, you know, when that didn't work, uh, they, of course, they issued the the death threat to him and his family, if he ever talked about it. And uh, there was a big article in the newspaper the next day about how the rancher had recanted his story. But in the end, he said, uh, uh, I've uh, I've seen balloons before. I know what they are. If I ever find anything uh, other than an atomic bomb, I'm not going to report it. They really upset him, and they worked him over. They gave him a full physical, certainly not for his health, but to, but to check to see, <laughs> to see that he hadn't kept any uh, wreckage in some hidden places. And uh, then they flew him back to his ranch, uh, totally uh, 
disillusioned and disgusted with his treatment. One of the um, things that yeah, go ahead. You know, I haven't even discussed with Tom yet, and it came to mind the other day, given the, the situation with the pandemic. And we've had numerous military witnesses describe that when they would work out at either the debris field or the impact site, but especially if they were involved with the bodies, that when they would return back to the base, they were first to report to the base hospital. Well, that makes perfect sense, especially if you're talking about concern of contamination. When right. you're dealing with something of that sort, you can only imagine what the concerns were. Uh, I mean, we had men who were picking up the debris talk about how they were actually quite frightened, upset, not knowing whether they were handling something that was going to, you know, damage their health down the road or not. And so I'm wondering more and more myself now that one of the reasons, one of the other reasons that they kept Brazil for as long as they did, and why they subjected him to an army physical is that they were also monitoring his health condition. They were seeing if anything developed while he was in their custody. Excellent just point. Imagine if, uh, you know, as civilians go, that if something should have happened, then how can they possibly then argue that this was just a weather balloon of people are developing all types of, you know, strange new you know, maladies that they couldn't explain at that time. So right. that may have been part of the reason that they also needed to, uh, you know, abduct him as they did. Um, getting back to the Deep Proctor site for a moment, I mean, how many, do we have a handle or do you have a handle on how many neighbors drifted down there to start collecting mementos? How many people might have pieces of this still in their attic somewhere? Yes, uh, uh, there were many. We, we figured there were, uh, not, you know, it wasn't a crowd, but there was a, 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 sev- more than several because uh, they, they, you know, this is near an air base and they're used to having uh, certain, you know, a certain number of crashes over the years, and uh, it was always the civilians that got to these crash sites uh, before the military. That was just standard operating procedure. Uh, I mean, they lived, you know, in the area, and they hear the crash, and they're out, they're out there, and uh, they always would collect uh, mementos, you know, pieces of wreckage, uh, if, you know, if they could fit them in their pocket and things like that, they, you know, whatever, and this would have been no different. And uh, we've had stories over the years uh, of ranchers who had pieces uh, at their house, you know, that they kept. But unfortunately, we've never been able to to pin one of them down to where they would admit it. We've had stories where uh, this one rancher had them over his, uh, you know, he had it over a cattle shed and he used it for target practice. Another one kept it on the television and... uh, but uh, I think we believe that eventually one one will surface. That's our hope. Someone eventually will come forward, or by accident, what have you, and one uh, a piece of uh, real wreckage will uh, be be uh, be seen. But uh, it's because it's because the ranchers got there first, and 
that uh and you mentioned Dee Proctor, he was with Mac uh with uh, the morning after the, the the crash. He was with Mac when they discovered all that stuff and I'll let Don talk about that. Well, and as Tom knows, we've had so many false alarms through the years. And we've had to, uh, you know, look into every possible lead, every possible story, whether it was photographs or documents, but especially as, you know, as we refer to, you know, the piece of the Holy Grail to actually come up with a piece of physical evidence that will just prove this overnight. And it's one of the reasons that, yes, we remain very optimistic. We remain hopeful that, uh, you know, somebody is still sitting on the prize, you know, of all time. And Re- I regarding can assure you, Dr. Richard, you don't uh, believe for a second it's a weather balloon. Right. Yeah. Uh, regarding you had asked about Dee Proctor, and the uh, reason we know about that was uh, uh, Dee Proctor died uh, at age 66, I guess, somewhere around 19, uh, wow, 96, 97, somewhere in that, that area. And um, I don't know, I guess it was around 2006. It was around 2000, yeah. Yeah. A little later, yeah. And. Uh, According to his mother, Loretta, who actually outlived him, uh, she only died within the last few years, up near up near a hundred, I think. And uh, right, she had told us that uh, that D, she she was actually very sick. This is in the mid nineties. She's she's on her sick bed. They don't know if she's going to recover or not. She's got some sort of uh, malady. I, I don't recall what it was, but. Here she is there in was a bed, blood, blood clot in her uh, carotid artery. Yeah, yeah. Gentlemen, I got to I got to take a quick. T- gentlemen, I got to take a break I, here. I want to show I you got, something. Gentlemen, <laughs> so, can you hear me? So, I got to take a quick break. We'll uh, we'll pick up on uh, we'll get to Deep Proctor's mother in uh, just a moment. Tom Carey, Don Schmidt stays with us as we explore the Roswell chronology right here on the Conspiracy Show. Back in a moment. When you look at the sky. Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Tom Carey and Don Schmidt. And uh, uh, Tom, you were talking about Dee Proctor's mother who outlived her son. Dee passed away. Uh, at the age of 61, his mother lived to close to 100, and you were telling a story. She was on her uh, her sick bed, and and what happened? Yeah, she's uh, she's on her uh, potentially her her deathbed with this uh, carotid. Uh, what, whatever was wrong with that, it was not good. <laughs> and in comes uh, D. This is in the mid 90s. I think it's 1993, 94, somewhere in that range. And they said, Mom, I gotta show you something. I gotta show you something. <laughs> and so he, he grabs her, bundles her up, puts her in his dusty pickup, and out they go into the desert, bouncing along. And this is, this is rough area. This, this is not like, uh, a paved highway. This is rough desert. And here she is, very sick, and he's taking her, he had, 
he felt compelled. He had to show her something because he didn't know if she was going to going to make it or not. And they pull up to a uh, a low bluff. Uh, we've been there several times, and there's a picture of it in the book. We we show you where it's at. And she says, uh, he says, Mom, this is where Mac found something else. And I think that's all he told her. This is where Mac found something else. Well, uh, Loretta already knew about the, the, you know, the wreckage. Well, what could it be that compelled Dee Proctor uh, uh, that he felt it was so important that he, he take his mother, who's on potentially her deathbed, out to show her where Mac found something else. And we learned from another witness that there were two bodies, two little bodies there that had fallen out or were blown out when the, th- the craft exploded. And uh, so that's how, uh, you know, that's how we found out about it, uh, because that's all he told her. Here's where he found something else. And uh, we found later what it was, and uh, we've been there. I won't say uh, Don's been there more times than I have, but uh, I, I've been there tw- twice, I think. And But there's a nice picture of it with me standing on the low bluff, Pointing, pointing out where these two little bodies would have fallen. Right, right. There's, um, you know, it's it's such a. Uh, I mean, back in 1947, it was a bustling little town. It had its own radio station, KGFL, uh, on uh, North Richardson Avenue. There's a wonderful picture uh, there. It's now a hair salon, I believe. Uh, right. But but uh, Mac. Brazel was kind of marched there by military ex um, military ex escort rather to re- to uh, to recant his earlier story, and uh, he was on with the the, the announcer Frank Joyce. Um, did you ever speak to um, Frank Joyce's uh, descendants, children, uh, or I don't know how long Frank Joyce lived, but to get his perspective on this story, he's the one that announced it. Well, in fact, we interviewed Frank Joyce many times since uh, 1989, right up to the time of his uh, his passing, almost uh, now uh, 20 years ago. But uh, keeping in mind that when Brazel reported the incident, first to the sheriff's office in Roswell, and who should call up, you know, just getting some late-breaking material for his next newscast, but Frank Joyce from the radio station, KGFL. And the sheriff says, I think there's somebody here you should talk with. So Joyce is the first newsman, first media reporter that Brazel speaks with. And he gets the story. And he gets the lowdown also on the bodies. He hears about the bodies. So that's one of the reasons that they had to, you know, grab Brazel because he's, he has seen much more than just wreckage. He has seen non-human bodies associated with the crash. So it's one of the reasons that they then, as you described, Richard, escorted him to the radio station. Joyce is thinking he's going to get, you know, the story of the century. And then he recants, as you mentioned. And he takes him off. Mike, they go out into the lobby, and then Joyce realizes, oh, now I see what's going on, because through the, the front door, he sees a number of MPs 
number of military police standing there waiting for the rancher. And that's when Brazel turns and says to him, you know, Miss Joyce, they told me you would go awful hard on me if I didn't do exactly as I was told. And then just as he started to leave, Joyce then repeats, but what about the little green men? To which Joyce turns back and says, but they weren't green. <laughs> and so that's what ties, you know, the, the whole D. Proctor site, you know, also into the Brazel story. The fact that Brazel also was a witness to at least two of the bodies atop that bluff, atop that site. Gentlemen, this was a short uh, segment. Uh, we'll come back and, and finish up some more questions regarding the uh, the chronology of the Roswell UFO incident. And we'll tell you how to get a copy of this uh, wonderful coffee table book. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back. A few moments remain with Tom Carey and Don Schmidt, authors, co-authors of Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. Uh, gentlemen, uh, before we run out of time, tell us how we can get a copy of this uh, wonderful coffee table book. Well, uh, I guess most people uh, th- these days, they go to Amazon uh, online or Barnes & Noble. I think it's also uh, online at Barnes & Noble and iTunes and a few other uh, online venues, uh, quite frankly, I never heard of. <laughs> but <laughs> you, you uh, can get, get them online. Uh, uh, if it's not on our website, I will put it on there tomorrow. I'll, I'll check tomorrow to see if it's on our website. And you can click there, and I'm sure it'll take you to Amazon. And our, our website is uh, www.roswellinvestigator.com. That's www.roswellinvestigator.com. And I don't know, you know, I don't, it's supposed to be in Barnes & Noble bookstores. If they, still, if they still have Barnes & Noble bookstores, you should be able to get it there. All right. Roswell, the chronological pictorial. Um, I wanted to ask you about the counter, the southwestern branch of the counterintelligence corps. You have a picture of the the agents there posing for a picture in Albuquerque in the late forties. Two gentlemen, uh, Sheridan Cabot, and I'm not sure if uh, Colonel Thomas Dubose was a member of the counterintelligence corps, but I'd like to to hear about these two gentlemen, how they uh, how they fit into this picture, and and what they told you. Well. Uh- Colonel at that time, Thomas J. DeBose, would have been the chief of staff of the 8th Air Force. His boss would have been General Roger Ramey, who happened to be the boss of the Colonel William Blanchard, the base commander of the 509th Bomb Group uh, headquartered at Roswell. So the infamous weather balloon press conference that happened not at Roswell, where they shifted all attention from New Mexico over to Fort Worth Carswell Army Airfield. And the Bose is pictured with his, you know, his boss, General Ramey, in two of those pictures of the uh, switched weather balloon with the radar reflector kite. And I'm sure most of your listeners have seen one version or another of, of those pictures. But the Bose 
before he died as a brigadier general, and he signed a sworn affidavit, he swore that the balloon was a hoax, that it was a cover story to get the press off of the general's back, as he put it. So he acknowledged that they were the ones who switched the balloon. They substituted the balloon for the actual material. So we couldn't get a much higher ranked, as far as witness, to the cover-up in that regard. And in mentioning Sheridan Cabot, he was a captain with counterintelligence. He was stationed at Roswell at that time. He would retire lieutenant colonel. And in interviewing him numerous times, in person and over the phone, he at first would swear he was not even at Roswell, and then I was there, but uh, I wasn't involved. And eventually he even acknowledged that, well, it could have been a flying saucer, but I wasn't involved. And then he would go on to become the star witness for the Air Force's Project Mogul Report that came out in 1994, where, you know, he claimed that he was the only one who recognized it for what it truly was, this Russian spy balloon, but he never bothered to tell anyone else at that time. So, uh, Cabot, uh, even his own family, his, his sons, Joe and Bates, they tried to get him to talk right up to the time he died, and all he would say was, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. So he acknowledged that there was still a truth, that there was still more that he could tell, but he was never ready, and he ran out of time, unfortunately. Uh, that reminds me, you, you mentioned you know, his family wanted him to tell more, but he wasn't ready. It reminds me of Nathan Twining. Uh, I guess it's Nathan Twining Jr. who uh, writes the the foreword, uh, who passed away in 2016, and talking about his dad and how his dad just wouldn't wasn't prepared ever to to sort of tell what he knew to his own son. Talk to me about that. We uh, we were good friends with uh, Nate Twining Jr. He uh, he had uh, residences in both Albuquerque and Baltimore. And when we would fly into Roswell, we would, would stop overnight on our way in uh, in Albuquerque and stay with Nate Twining, Jr. And uh, he told us that his, uh, his father would not, would not discuss uh, Roswell with him. Uh, so we had to take him at, at face value. But he uh, uh, Junior did lead us to several other witnesses, which were a big help to us. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, uh, he always called me Jim Carrey, like, you know, like the <laughs> like the actor. But I said, no, no, it's Tom. But uh, he he said, you guys, meeting Don and me, he said, you guys are my heroes. You guys are my heroes because you're doing what my father would have wanted you to do. And uh, I still remember him saying that. It made, it made us feel very, uh, very re, uh, respected, and, uh, you know, it made us feel good. I uh, just have a, a, f- a few minutes here. One of my favorite uh, stories or witnesses, if you will, is um, U.S. Senator Joseph Montoya. Uh, who visited the big hangar 
and I was there and I guess kind of a ribbon cutting uh, ceremony and uh, happened to see some things he wasn't supposed to see. Uh, you actually have the uh, of the pictures. You identify the the people that that drove Montoya home after he saw the boy the, the bodies. Uh, tell me about um, is it is it Pete uh, Anaya and his wife Mary? Pete Anaya, Pete and Ruben An- Anaya. They were two brothers. As civilians, they both worked out at the base at that time, and they were also Montoyistas. They were childhood friends of the then Lieutenant Governor, uh, Joseph Montoya, who would then go on to become senator, and they were big campaign supporters. They, uh, they assisted him in uh, you know, election campaigns, and so uh, he would typically stay at the Nixon Hotel in downtown Roswell. And so when one of them got the phone call, basically, come and get me out of here. I'm out at the base. You can pick me up at the water tower by the big hangar. Get me out of here. And uh, picking him up and in the back seat, he just, you know, you know, kept holding his head in his hands. And you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. And then uh, I need a drink. I need a drink. And uh, once he got back to one of their homes, and that's when he went on and on how they weren't human. They weren't human. And so the story was that he was taken to Hangar P3, which is now Building 84, and that he was shown the survivor. He, he saw it on the concrete floor, and he noticed that the knee was rocking back and forth, and he thought he could hear it actually moaning, groaning in pain. And uh, that's when he realized, my God, at first he thought they were children, and then he saw they weren't. But he would always warn the Anayas that if you ever say a word about this, I would tell, you, tell them you're liars. You're liars. You're not telling the truth. Now, Pete's wife, Mary, also described to us that the boys, the husbands, got in trouble. That that very evening, there was a big argument out in the front yard with one of the officers from the base that came to pay a visit to her husband and her brother-in-law. And they were threatened, they were warned at that time that if they ever talked about what had transpired, that uh, the families would also be in jeopardy. Uh, one of the, the documents we don't have time to discuss, and so we'll have to have you back on, but but people can, can buy the book and, and find is I think it's a, maybe, I don't know, agree, disagree, one of the most important documents regarding Roswell, and that is the sealed statement of former Roswell Air Base PIO Walter Hout with instructions to release it after his death. He died in 2007. Just give, we, just, we have about a minute and a half, just, just give people a tease about that, that document. We, uh, we have it as an, uh, a, I think we have it in an appendix uh, in the back of the book, and uh, we uh, we thought, oh, we knew Walter very well, but all he would ever say publicly was, well, I delivered the press release from uh, my commanding officer to the local media, and that that was it. But, uh, but over the years, we learned from other witnesses that Walter uh, had to know more than he uh, knew more than what he was telling us. So... Uh, we put together a list of things we believe Walter was involved in and what he knew, and we said, Walter, we would like to get a sealed statement from you because he he was honoring a pledge from his commanding officer never to talk about it uh, while he was still alive. Of all the things he knew 
what we believed he knew, and we said, take a look at this with your family, with your lawyer, whoever you want, and uh, add what you would like and subtract what you don't like, and uh, we will uh, put that in a sealed statement, and he agreed to it, and you can find it in the back of the book. And he certainly did know more and was involved in more than what he was uh, saying publicly. Well, again, gentlemen, congratulations on Roswell, the chronological uh, pictorial of Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, just uh, type the title into your uh, your search engine and uh, you'll, you'll find it. Uh, again, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and uh, hope to talk again soon. Thank you, Richard. Look forward to it, Richard. Thank you. All right, when we come back, Preston Dennett, longtime paranormal UFO research researcher with 15 never-before-published cases of onboard UFO encounters. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to everyone listening in on our flagship station, AM 740 and 96.7 FM, Zuma Radio here in Toronto. Hiya to those tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey there to everyone streaming us live at zoomerradio.ca and on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. And of course, hi there to those who assemble in the YouTube live chat every week. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Preston Dennett, longtime UFO and paranormal researcher, is here from Southern California to discuss some of the 15 never-before-published alien contact cases in his new book, On Board UFO Encounters. Before we get rolling, let me once again wish my Orthodox Christian listeners Hallo Pascha, Happy Easter, Christos Anesti, Aletos Anesti. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, just go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca to register. Inner Sanctum contains my monthly brief, a This Month in Conspiracy History feature, a book club, a spotlight on a previous guest, and uh, much more. Again, subscribe to Inner Sanctum today. To register, go to strangeplanet.ca. What really happens when someone is taken on board an alien craft? Well, the answer may surprise you. You're about to hear some remarkable and disturbing accounts which provide an extensive exploration deep into the heart of the UFO phenomenon and show just how fascinating and strange UFO contact can be. A wide variety of ETs are represented, including greys, praying mantis, human-looking ETs, hybrids, humanoids of all types, ordinary people each who have had the extraordinary experience of being taken aboard a UFO. Preston Dennett began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986 when he discovered that his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. And since then, 
He's interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated a wide variety of paranormal phenomena. He's a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, a ghost hunter, a paranormal researcher, and the author of more than 13 books and more than 100 articles on UFOs and the paranormal. His articles have appeared in numerous magazines, including Fate, Atlantis Rising, MUFON, UFO Journal, Nexus, Paranormal Magazine, UFO Magazine, Mysteries Magazine, Ufologist, and others. His writing has been translated into several different languages, and he's appeared on numerous radio and television programs, including Coast to Coast AM, just last night with yours truly. And additionally, additionally, Preston has taught classes on various paranormal subjects and lectures across the United States. Preston Dennett, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm well. Have you rested up and recovered from last night? <laughs> I have, yeah. That was a remarkable, I mean, we had, a, a I thought, a, a, a wonderful discussion uh, but the, the callers towards the tail end of the program, very emotional. How did you feel about some of those calls? Oh, it, you know, it breaks my heart. I really, my heart goes out to them. I, this is something I deal with, you know, pretty regularly. Uh, hearing people struggle with this, it's a real phenomena. I know that people who don't have these encounters regularly, they kind of just brush them off. Skeptics, I'm like... <laughs> You've got to start taking this seriously. Uh, whenever there's a real skeptic, I challenge them to ask everyone they, they know, have they had a UFO encounter? I think they'll be really surprised because a lot of people are dealing with this. Well, it hit home for me, Preston, because unlike you, I'm not an investigator. I interview people like you. I interview, so I'm getting it, you know, third, second, third hand. So for me to hear I mean, that that raw emotion was palpable I, for people who didn't hear. There was one case, one caller in particular, Daniel from Arkansas, uh, who called in and began to recount his his memory of what sounded like an abduction, sounded like his experience aboard some sort of a craft he described in, in pretty good detail. Uh, and then he just broke down. And and uh, for me, that's when it hit home. I mean, th- th- these are just not case studies in a book these are human beings these are damaged people and and as you say you you know i have to admit you know in some of these cases i'm on the fence well are these people fantasizing uh did are they misremembering uh are they confusing a dream but when you hear something like that i tell you it makes it makes you really stop and think that there might be something really going on here you you don't fake that uh, I mean, that, if, if he was faking it, and I don't believe he was, that's an Oscar-winning uh, performance. He was, he's damaged. Oh, you know, this is something I, yeah. There, when I start dealing with a person who's having these experiences, it's often a, a series of phone calls, uh, Skype interviews, hopefully, you know, face-to-face if I can. And uh, we work through it, um, for sure. You can tell, I mean, uh, it's not at all unusual for people to break down crying. There's a lot of emotions wrapped up in this. They don't have anyone to talk to. They're being rejected officially by society. Um, they're afraid to tell their closest loved ones because these are the ones they love closest. They don't want to be rejected by them. So it's often the very closest people to them that they're 
are the last to hear. Right. And it's not just the the people directly involved, as you say, it's the family members. We had another call from a woman. Again, very emotional. I, I just felt I wanted to reach through the phone and, and give her a hug. She was talking about her brother who served at Camp Pendleton. And Camp Pendleton comes up time and again in in these alien abduction cases, as you'll tell us throughout this hour. But her, her brother came back from First, he was in Camp Pendleton. He had some sort of a breakdown. They threatened to throw him in the in the uh, in the brig. Uh, they gave him an option to go to Vietnam. I guess he came back from a tour of duty. Went back to Pendleton. She didn't see him for an extended period of time. One night, he shows up in the middle of the night in her bedroom, uh, sobbing uncontrollably, and and she just she held him for hours and hours and hours. He's, he's still alive, but she says he's never been the same. Something happened, UFO related, uh, but he's never spoken about it. Um, what can you tell us about what you heard in that call? What what stood out for you? Uh, yeah, well, I'm really disappointed with how Milter is handling this. Uh, Camp Pension, as you mentioned, is one of the cases in the book. Uh and it's really been implicated in a number of other cases. And here's a caller coming in saying, well, this happened to me too. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, this is terrible. Uh, I, I'm very disappointed with how our own government has been dealing with this, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think we're dealing with you know, a real situation here that needs to be remedied. And uh, shouldn't be someone like me, a bookkeeper from Reseda, you know, trying to deal with this, but hey, here I am doing the best I can. Yeah, you're doing a great job. But let's talk about that case in the book, Onboard UFO Encounters, that centers around Camp Pendleton. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting case. This young boy by the name of Ramon, well, that's a pseudonym. Uh, it was, let's see, 1953. He's about four or five years old and is with his friends, a couple of his cousins. This is in San Fernando, California, right at the base of Hanson Dam, actually. They see this UFO. It's got portholes. There's ETs looking out at them, waving at them, and darned if this object doesn't land right at the base of Hanson Dam. So, of course, these six, seven kids take pick up their bikes, bike up to it, and completely freak out. They realize this is something very unusual, uh, all except for Ramon, and he actually walks up to this thing, climbs on top of it, you know, finds a porthole or a doorway and goes inside, has missing time. And a couple of hours later, you know, he's set free or let go. Uh, very disoriented. Uh, his is a real complex case. So I'm going to shorten this up a little bit, but over the next fewer week here, he had a repeat of this experience. He would wake up in the middle of the night and we pulled out of his house, right through the closed door, down through the living room and to the base of Hanson Dam where there was this UFO that had landed again. And he's taken on board. And after it happened like three or four, five maybe times, he started to really remember what happened. Uh, he remembered being placed in a chair. He saw a view screen, there were stars moving around. He remembered being examined. It was very painful. He saw grays. Uh, he couldn't describe them too well. He said they were very scary to look at. And this is how it kind of all started. Now, following this, he 
had experiences on pretty much an ongoing basis. All up through his teenage years, he would have abductions. Pretty much always the same thing, him being examined. It was never really a pleasant thing for him. And uh, as he's at age 17, you know, he's having a hard time. He's getting involved in gangs and uh, in a bad neighborhood. He's got to change his life, so he decides to join the Marines. He's 17 years old. He's not really of age yet. He gets a waiver from his parents, and boom, he finds himself stationed at Camp Pendleton. Now, Camp Pendleton has a UFO history. I'll just put it that way. One story that comes to mind is from Leonard Stringfield, uh, who interviewed a crash, a soldier who was involved in a crash retrieval incident, who was taken from that area to photograph a crashed UFO. So they've got a lot of UFO history. So here he is stationed, you know, he's 17 years old. He's suddenly got a crypto clearance, top secret. He's sitting in his office and two higher ranking officers, one was a corporal, I forget what the other one was, a captain, start talking about crashed UFOs, alien bodies. And he's thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what's going on here? They shouldn't be talking so loudly. I shouldn't be hearing this. Later, he realized it was all just a setup because next thing he knows, he's volunteered against his will, <laughs> quote, <laughs> to do this project for the, quote, betterment of our country. And he finds himself, you know, there's a lot of shady stuff going on here. There was a, he was really manipulated. He doesn't remember everything that happened. It was, his father told him, don't volunteer for any special projects next thing he knows boom he's involved in one and he's being he's on this bus this is what he remembers he's on this bus with blacked out windows curtains only thing he can see is out front and they go for three four hours from camp pendleton through desert area through it must have been five to ten uh blockades or uh, security clearance areas. Right. Uh, so it was a very clearly a high-level area where they were going to, and they had a lot of trouble getting into it, and finally they get there. There is a warehouse, a hangar, and they're taken into, and there's this sergeant, the one that had originally kind of convinced them into taking this, quote, special project for the betterment of the United States. And he says, okay, and there's a group of 20 Marines here. They're all kind of sat down one by one. They're all taken to a chair, given a blood test, injected with some drug, gone through some sort of uh, mind control experiment, it appears. Uh, they were told, don't be afraid. Something's going to happen. We're right here with you. Don't break rank. And uh, one by one, they were all put back in rank, including Ramon, and out they showed this crashed UFO. You know, they opened the hangar doors, and there was this not crashed UFO. It was actually perfect shape. Ramon said it was exactly the type of UFO he had seen as a child, except it wasn't shiny like he remembered. It was kind of a dull matte silver. And then out marches these, you know, the sergeant makes a signal and marches out these reptilian humanoids. Not just one, a group of them. Uh, and they were very large. Immediately, all the Marines broke rank. Ramon didn't. He stood firm. And 
one of these reptilian humanoids marches right up to him, seven feet tall, maybe eight, twice as wide, very muscular, extremely threatening. And you know, this is when Ramon actually did break down. He was he had a real hard time in describing this. And said, "Well, what did they look like?" This is you know, honestly, Preston. I can't tell you for sure because it was very hard for me to look at them. And he said, "You know, I do remember scaly skin. I do remember snake-like eyes, and it was just very threatening and extremely muscular, and you know, seven or eight feet tall." And he and he's breaking down as he's telling you this. He's crying. Yes. Yeah, it was very difficult for him. Uh, so we did a couple of interviews on this, but you can only push a person so far. Yes, know? exactly. Uh, so I don't want to. You know, I, I really hate to invade people's lives and you know their privacy and cause further damage. Uh, so I have to be very careful. And was he? in an underground base when he, I mean, what was no. the connection between the military and these reptilians? They were working with them. Yeah, this was very curious. This is something I did ask. I'm like, well, who was, who was in charge? Cause I, I was, you know, wondering about this. I mean, who's being, has our military been co-opted by reptilian aliens? That was my concern. And, uh, he pretty much addressed it. He said, we know they did not seem to be ordered around at all. Uh, nor were the, you know, it seemed pretty equal. They seemed like partners. So, and what was the purpose of, of sh- sh- uh, showing themselves, revealing themselves to these Camp Pendleton soldiers? What was the point of all that? Uh, apparently to test their reaction, to see how they would handle it. And uh, they did not handle it well. Ramon did. But, you know, like we see in these cases immediately after something like this happens, they're often shipped off to some foreign country. Ramon was shipped off to Vietnam. This is exactly what the other caller, you know, last night said, I'm like, wow, here we go again. This is a technique. This is exactly what happened to Sergeant Charles Moody after he had an abduction in New Mexico, shipped him off, seen it in a lot of other cases. Maybe they're hoping that they'll, they'll be killed over there and they won't have to deal with them anymore. Yes. I think so, or won't have to deal with the publicity. And yeah, they do sometimes are, you know, go missing or are killed, or we don't know. Uh, yet Ramon, he suffered a serious injury, as did the caller's brother, by the way. Yes. Uh, which I'm like, oh, great. You know, another coincidence, you know, in quotes. And Ramon was shipped back and he start, continued to have encounters. He remembered he was put into food service. He did not want to deal on the front line anymore. He was injured, so he was able to do that. Uh, but he would work very late at night, 3, 4 a.m., and kept seeing this one guy that was very peculiar looking with very strange eyes. And one day, another guy looked just like him. They showed up. They looked like twins. He walks up to them and saw the back of their neck. And he said, darned if they didn't look like uh, premature hornets. He could see right through their skin the blood flowing and just, it wasn't human. And their eyes were very strange. Uh, He has a lot of memory problems with what's happened to him at that, you know, short period in the military. He got out as soon as he could. Uh, But, and 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 how did he carry on after that? Did he hold a steady job? Did he have a family? What, what has become of him? 
Uh, he's now 73 years old, still dealing with it, you know, has kids, grandkids who are continuing to have sightings. Uh, he got a job as a welder. He worked very hard in human rights, a really great guy. He was able to, you know, raise very low paid workers, their wages uh, significantly. This, uh, this is something I see with a lot of experiencers. They're very good people. <laughs> And uh, and is does he continue to have abduction experiences with the Greys? Um, well, yes and no. He had one major abduction, uh, but mostly it's just these very close up sightings. Greys inside his house. Uh, he had a divorce due to the Greys kept appearing. His first wife couldn't handle it and just said, "You know, I'm sorry. I love you, but I have to leave you. This I just can't deal with this." Uh, and what is the connection between the reptilians that he saw at Camp Pendleton and the Greys, if any? It's a great question. I don't know. What I do see is that people who have encounters have encounters with multiple types of ETs. Is, he, is he also being monitored by, I don't know, a Majestic 12, Men in Black, anything like that? I would say, I mean, I feel like that's true. I can't confirm that. I do feel like, you know, most UFO researchers are probably monitored and high profile abductees. By the way, I was interviewing him, Ramon, one day, and he called me back after the interview. He says, you know, while we were talking on the phone, my son was observing a UFO up outside his bedroom window. He said it landed in the street. Oh, my. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, he's not the only uh former military person who is featured in onboard UFO encounters, 15 never before published cases, uh, close contact with extraterrestrials. We're going to take a, t a time out here. When we come back, we'll talk about an air force officer who works for special forces. And uh, this individual's experience again with the gray aliens. Preston Dennett, my guest back with more in a moment, right here on the conspiracy show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Preston Dennett, my guest on board UFO Encounters. Um, there are a number of military people, obviously, uh, in, in the book that have had uh, abduction experiences. Not all, though. Have you come any closer to figuring out why certain people are abducted and others are not? How are they selected, do you think? Uh, well, I've certainly looked into it. I, I can only speculate. It's pretty evenly divided between men and women. I see no patterns in terms of race, religion, uh, geographic location. The only pattern I did notice uh, is pro profession. People who are outside late at night, that seems to increase your chances. Police officers, things like that, truck drivers. Uh, and in terms of you know extensive contact, yeah, I have noticed one loose pattern, uh, but it's, I can't really confirm it too well, but it's people who are doing good work for humanity in some capacity. What I'm seeing is a lot of social workers, teachers, doctors, you know, police officers, inventors, uh, this sort of thing. 
but I'm just not committed to it quite yet because no, it's pretty random. I do see that it does follow families. So that's certainly a it's very generational. It's generational. So if oh, you're yeah. speaking, so in the case of, let's say Ramon for, uh, was, were, are his children also abductees? Was Ramon's father or mother an abductee? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Though the, you know, his children or grandchildren haven't reported this, but they've reported close-up UFO sightings. And when something's within 200 feet of you, you know, a couple hundred feet, that's a red flag. And uh, his grandmother took him out one day after following a couple of abductions. His grandmother lived up in Fresno, and he would stay with her, you know, to escape the hardship of the city life as a young teenager. Uh, he had abductions there, and following one of these, he t she took him out to a wilderness area, and darned if these UFOs didn't start landing. <laughs> and she's like telling him, you know, th these are things you're going to have to deal with throughout your life. Uh, so apparently, yeah, she, this is something she knows about and has been dealing with. She took a spiritual viewpoint towards it uh, and thought it was, you know, something religious, which, you know, something he's himself has adopted. So, that must be so horrible for someone who's an abductee that has children to know that it, what, what, what happened to them or is happening to them will likely also happen to their children. And there's nothing, well, there doesn't seem to be a lot they can do about it. Yeah, turns up in most of the cases, too. Uh, All right. Uh, so let's talk about this Air Force officer who works for special forces. Uh, and I say works. So this person is still with special forces? Uh, no, not at this point. She's retired. Uh, she's had a lot of uh, health problems due to what happened, as you know, I'll tell you. Yeah, it's really quite an incredible case. Uh, and I believe she was born around 1950, mid-1950s. She's a very young girl. You know, this is in Florida. Uh, really, from the, her parents had had a number of sightings. Uh, and uh, when she was a very young girl, strange things started happening. She would disappear. They could not find her in the house, and she, they'd find her in a closet in another room. Once they found her two miles away outside the house, it was a real problem. And as she became a young girl, she started having visitations in her bedroom by gray type ETs. Uh, her father was in the military, very high place with NASA, uh, an architect and uh, pretty influential within his capacity. And uh, from, an, like, I think it was age 13, 14, D Dolly is her name. She's gone public. She's letting her real name be used. She's ready to go forward with this. Uh, she had a very dramatic sighting uh, at her home in Florida. This is near the Florida Everglades. Uh, there was confirmation of it in the newspaper the next day. She saw a number of UFOs. One dropped down out of the sky. It was right behind her house. Suddenly, it's, she realizes it's looking at her. sends a beam of light. And she's extremely frightened. She turns to run. Her whole room fills with light. Next thing she knows, it's the next morning. So this is how it all kind of started for her. Uh, her father, you know, trained her in a lot of science areas. She's uh, trained in martial arts. Very intelligent woman, very uh, accomplished, and uh, got involved in the military and became 
employed by the Army Department of Defense, can drive pretty much any vehicle and was employed for, you know, driving very special cargo. And let's see, I believe it was in uh, 2008, she's worked working at Fort Benning and is on her way to work. Uh, not feeling well, you know, she's having a lot of trouble at home and uh, sees this UFO following her. It's very large. It's completely silent. She's familiar with aircraft. She knows pretty soon this is something unusual, especially when it comes zooming towards her car and basically buzzes it. You know, it's like 200 feet over her car, makes a U-turn, right? Stops there in front of her, the, her car, in front of her windshield. And sends her a telepathic message that's very strong. She, she hears it, you know, very strong. It says something is bad at home. And she was confused by the message because she doesn't know what home really means. Is that earth, you know, is that her own home? Uh, so she's pretty confused by it. Um, so she goes home, goes to sleep, has a powerful dream of this incident. And, uh, this time, her husband's name is attached, her ex-husband, I'll just say. And so she started watching him very carefully, because at this point, he was acting very aloof, very strange. And, you know, I brought home Chinese food. She became very sick, had to be rushed to the hospital, and uh, was diagnosed with food poisoning. Well, a couple of days later, she had a heart attack, or what appeared to be a heart attack, and... Uh, she, she, as she's watching her husband very closely at this point and finally goes to the doctor because she's continuing to have illness and he tells her that she has been poisoned with antifreeze. By and, her husband. Yes. So long story short, she got a warning from this UFO that her husband uh, was basically a secret sociopath and was poisoning her. Oh, Turned out he Lord. Yeah, it turned out he was. He has a history of this. It was a real problem. Uh, she didn't know. Uh, it was a messy separation. And it's one of several incidents where, you know, she's been basically rescued by these, what you know, friendly UFOs. It's her son is what she finally realized. It's her hybrid son, full grown. She met him face to face a couple of years later. He's a gray? He's a gray, half gray. Yeah, it was 2012. She wakes up. You know, she's thirsty. She goes downstairs. You know, she had just broken her elbow or her arm uh, and was, you know, somewhat inca incapacitated and had gone to get some milk, some juice. And see, walks into the kitchen and sees this gray hybrid, you know, adult. And she's like, wow, I'm fully conscious. I can't believe you're there. Who are you? And this gray uh, male says, you know me. Don't you recognize me? She says, no, I don't. He says, yes, you know me. I'm your son. And she's completely freaking out. You know, her heart is like pounding out of her chest because this, this is a fully conscious encounter. It's just not something you expect. And uh, she looks at him and sure enough, she can see he's part human. And darned if he doesn't have some family resemblance. He goes on to you know, give her some messages, a couple of cases just like this. Uh, one's much more extensive, actually. Uh, she just got a few messages. He told her that we're watching you. You know, There's a lot of us looking out for you. We were worried about 
your arm? Are you okay? And she says, yes. How old are you? And he says, I'm about 25, as you would think of it. But really, I'm much older because I live in a different time stream, or he used a different term. Uh, Was he communicating telepathically or in, in spoken English? Telepathically. Mm. Yeah. Which is generally what happens. Not always. In Ramon's case, he says they spoke out loud often to him. Uh, or at least that's how he perceived it. Why? Maybe it's the uh, a result of this being a hybrid, so having some humanity uh, there. But often we hear the greys being described as just emotionless and clinical and kind of cruel. And yet then we have these cases where the greys are very empathetic, sympathetic, kind. Right. Yeah, I've got about three. You know, there's 15 cases in the book. And I thought, hey, you know, this is a good opportunity because I kind of brought these cases together based on the uh, qualification that these are people who have been taken on board. Now, that was really the only qualification I looked for when putting these cases together. I thought, okay, well, how many have had positive experiences? How negative? You know, what's going on here? Uh, about two or three have had, you know, what I would call pretty unfriendly, you know, not fun, horrendous, even horrific abductions. They don't like it. And right on the other spectrum, there's about five that are really positive. And the rest in between have sort of a mixture of positive and negative. Most feel they're dealing with ETs as we think of them in the classic sense. But I have to tell you, not all of them. One thinks perhaps these guys are demons, demonic. One thinks, you know, I think they could very well be angelic. Another guy says, you know, I don't think they're ETs at all, honestly. He says, I think they wear different masks. This is an intelligence that takes on different forms. Um, I don't buy it that they're aliens at all. All right, uh, Preston, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, continue to delve into uh, some of these remarkable cases never before published on board UFO Encounters with Preston Dennett. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay right where you are. We'll also open up the phone lines and take questions and comments right here on The Conspiracy Show. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Preston Dennett stays with us on board UFO Encounters. And um, I want to... Because I'm Canadian, and we have a Canadian uh, listenership, by and large, I wanted to ask you about the the the, uh, the case in the book dealing with a Canadian entertainer who uh, took a road trip across the Canadian Rocky Mountains, and it resulted in an incredible UFO encounter. First, let me ask you, is this a well-known entertainer, and, and have they allowed themselves to be identified publicly? Uh, no, I always wanted him to, I mean, he allowed his real name to be used, James Santiago, uh, but he performed under a pseudonym and yeah, he was wildly popular. He won't let me talk about it. There's a number of reasons. He has some family issues. Uh, oh, so in other words, if we heard the, his stage name, we would recognize him immediately. I couldn't say that. 
Ah, okay. No, no, I could not say that. But he was well known in the field that he entertained in. All right. And uh, so he taking he's taking a trip across the Rockies. Yeah, this is a crazy story. I got to know this gentleman very well. He became a very good friend until his death, uh, you know, not too long ago of prostate cancer. God bless him. Great guy. Very funny. Really knew how to tell a story. And often as he talked about this, yeah, I could see his eyes well up with tears. He became very excited. Uh, it's a story he's told many times. It was 1982. Uh, he had just finished a series of shows in Calgary and uh, had to go to Vancouver to do another show. And it turned out his makeup artist had a mother who was ex an extremely famous and wealthy artist and was going to go to Calgary and try convinced him to basically take a road trip. Now, James is like, no, I'm not going on any road trip. I, I always fly. He's very high class. Uh, you know, I saw him on TV, actually. He became very well-known as a makeup artist in the movie industry later on. Uh, and uh, finally just decided to take this road trip with this woman who was elderly, very famous artist, extremely eccentric. And they're like 10 miles out, 20 miles out from Calgary when she says, you know what? Uh, do you have any change on you? Any copper? He's like, yeah, I have copper. You know, I've got some pennies. She's like, get rid of it because aliens use copper to follow me. I'm being followed by UFOs. So he pulls out his change, gives it away to some kid. And it's like, oh, great. You know, now I'm stuck with this crazy lady who's being followed by UFOs. And she's like, hey, believe me or not, you'll see. And long story short, they're in the middle of the Rockies there, Canadian Rockies. And she says, do you feel it? Do you feel the pressure? And he says, the no. Pressure. Yeah, the hmm. pressure. She's, he says, no. What are you talking about? You know, she had talked a lot. She was a, turned out she was a really neat lady, knew all about Atlantis and all these occult subjects. Uh, he had had a ghost sighting as a child, saw his mother after he di she died. So was really you know, warming up to her. And she turns to him and says, do you feel the pressure? And he's like, no, what? What the heck are you talking about? Great. Here's this crazy lady again. And she says, it's a UFO. It's coming. You'll feel it soon. And sure enough, he felt it. And this is something I've heard from many witnesses. I have to tell you, Richard, uh, this is something they use to paralyze people. It's a pressure that basically paralyzes you as they approach closer. Uh, this is kind of my assessment of what's going on here. Because as they're driving along, and this is, you know, right in the middle of the Rockies, uh, this pressure mounts and gets stronger and stronger. And he's like, I can feel it. Oh, my God, I can feel it. He's like, he's like what is that? And he says, she says, that's them. Hold on, they're coming. And shortly after that, this craft shows up. He said it was this beautiful emerald green. It was the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. It came right over the car, 20 feet, 30 uh, held on to it, tracked them like a had a governor on their car. Uh, he said he had this real incredible expansion of awareness, almost like a mini enlightenment. He said it was very hard to describe, but he was more aware than he's ever been. Had a number of people tell me the same exact thing in different words. Uh, he said it was a great experience. He was just thrilled. 
but she wasn't. She was very scared and pressed on the accelerator and screeching through the mountain roads here, freaking him out. And she says, pull open the glove compartment, empty it out. There's a secret compartment. Press the button on the bottom of the glove compartment. He's like, great. You know, this is very strange. This lady is freaking me out. Uh, but does what she says, empties the glove compartment out. And I tell you, this is a strange story, but it's what it is. And uh, presses the secret button and out pops this compartment. And he pulls out this thing wrapped in velvet. She, she says, unwrap it. And he unwraps it. And it's this giant gold bracelet. He says it's huge. It couldn't possibly be worn by a woman. It's much too heavy. It's covered with sea foam green uh, precious stones or semi-precious stones. Clearly a priceless artifact. And she says, put it between us. Hold on to it. And this will drive the UFO away. Uh, <laughs> his senses are kind of overwhelmed at this point, And he just does what she says. And they continue driving. And eventually this UFO does leave. And she says, okay, you know, it's gone. You can put this thing away. And he's like, well, what is it? I mean, where'd you get this thing? And she was hesitant to tell him, but he was pretty stubborn. And she finally said, well, you know, when I was a very young woman, I was scuba diving off the coast of Spain when I heard a voice in my head that guided me to it underwater. And I pulled this thing out and they, the voice told her it was from Atlantis. So... There oh, you my word. <laughs> it gets stranger and stranger. Unbelievable. All right, uh, Preston, another time out um, is uh, nigh. So we'll come back and uh, perhaps time to discuss a, another story or two. We'll also open the phone lines, questions, comments, maybe even share uh, an alien abduction experience. Preston Dennett, author of Onboard UFO Encounters, stays with us. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. A few moments remain with Preston Dennett, author of Onboard UFO Encounters. Uh, Preston, before we run out of time and I forget to ask, how do we get a copy of this book? Uh, you can just pick it up on Amazon.com, or if you go to my website, uh, you can click on that and order it through my website. I've got excerpts there. You can also contact me through my website. If they order it through the website, can they get an autographed copy? Uh, yeah, if they actually email me, I'm happy to do that. All right, give us the website. I've linked up to it uh, at uh, Strange Planet slash a uh, strange planet dot c slash conspiracy show but uh you, you if you can give us the uh, the the uh, the web address yeah sure probably the easiest way is just to google my name preston dennett it should take you right there the actual address is preston dennett dot weebly dot com and uh yeah you can definitely uh get a book with an autograph just let me know all right so uh these are not always greys that are behind these abductions. Sometimes they are, as you call them, friendly, human-looking E.T. Such was the case uh, with a young boy who was uh, taken for, uh, on board and uh, went for a bit of a joyride. Tell me about it. 
Yeah, there's a couple of cases like this, actually. The one that really leaps out for me is Ron from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. This is June 1965. He's like 13 years old. He's out there skateboarding with his friends, as he usually does, you know, on a summer evening. It's around uh, 7 o'clock. His friends are supposed to be home by 9. He's allowed to stay out till 10. And they, you know, we're just out there right behind his house when this UFO shows up. It's a classic saucer, metallic. It's got, uh, it's pretty big. It's got a red light on the bottom, kind of reminded Ron of a red reflector on a bicycle. And suddenly this window appears, this sort of porthole, and they can see two figures, human looking. And Ron thinks to himself, oh gosh, you know, take me for a ride. I really want to go up there with you. Uh, and boom, next thing he knows, he's facing the other direction. This UFO is still up in the sky. They're waving goodbye to him. He's waving goodbye. Feels a real poignant sorrow. His friends are facing the other direction. They appear to be not moving. And this UFO darts away turns to his friends. He says, can you believe that? We just saw a UFO. Did you see those guys that were inside it? And his friends say, what UFO? <laughs> we didn't see anything. What are you talking about? You're crazy. And this really upset him. And he started to argue with him when one of, suddenly they realized it was 10 o'clock. Three hours had passed. Uh, so they're like, oh my God, you know, we're in trouble. We've got to get home right now. So they all divide. They go home. Ron goes home and tells his mom. He says, I saw a UFO. She's like, really? He says, yeah, honest to God. You know, there are people. I don't know what happened. Suddenly it's 10. It's very strange. She's like, wow, you know, that's amazing. Are you all right? And, you know, she was very supportive. Uh, next morning, he gets up, runs over to his friend's house. They still don't remember. They're grounded. Neither of them remember anything. They think he's crazy. He goes back home. You know, he's devastated because he's like starting to second guess himself at this point and tells his mom, he's like, you know, I don't know what happened. You know, maybe I imagined everything. And she's like, no, look at the newspaper. Turned out there was a sighting that evening. Several people in his neighborhood saw this. Uh, apparently, he was the only one who saw these humanoids. And so that really gave him, you know, a boost of uh, confidence. But what's really interesting is, you know, he had missing time. However, over the next week, two weeks, a month, he started to remember stuff. Uh, just popped into his mind, flashbacks. Uh, this is something you know that happens with people have dealt with child abuse, perhaps, or war, war trauma victims. These flashbacks do occur. Uh, and this is what we're seeing in a lot of UFO cases. So he had these flashbacks of what happened and remembered a lot of what happened, perhaps not everything, but what he does recall is he's sitting here, you know, sees the UFO, waving at this thing, and boom, he's on board. He's sitting between two adults. He's on a very low bench, rounded walls, very clean, and he sees two beautiful human beings in jumpsuits uh, looking at him. They're very friendly. He says they seem almost perfect, almost angelic. Uh, he's got a religious viewpoint towards this. He feels like they might be angels, uh, something to do with 
you know, religion certainly, and God. Uh, but they said, he said, he stood up, walked over to them. They took him to a view screen, showed him the sort of field of stars. It's another thing I hear pretty frequently. They take people to a view screen and show them a field of stars. <laughs> Not sure what it means. Uh, and it didn't go much beyond that. It feels like, yeah, there's not, you know, there's some stuff he doesn't remember. But next thing he knows, he's back on the ground. Was this a one-off or did it happen again? This was a one-off. He did have other sightings, some close up, and his children and relatives had some very close up sightings. Uh, but so far, his is the most extensive. Uh, and yeah, that was it. These... Um human-looking ETs, any, any sense of where they're from? Are they, I, I say that because, uh, and one of the callers last night mentioned this, uh, the possibility that they might be time travelers, they might be us in the future. This is a, a hypothesis that's been put forward by, I believe is a professor of anthropology out west. His name is Michael P. Masters, and he wrote a book called Identified Flying Objects. He believes there's a, there's a distinct possibility the, the pilots of these crafts are our, our uh, uh, I guess, our ancestors in the future coming back. Yeah, wouldn't that be something else? Our children, basically. Yeah, right, our uh, descendants, not our ancestors, our descendants, uh, yes. Right, so um, it's not, a, it's a theory I'm not, you know, ready to rule out, certainly, because there are a number of cases that speak directly to that. People have been told by the ETs, uh, that we are you, you are us, you know, one day you will look like us or directly. Yeah. We are from your future. It's not a lot of cases though. And, you know, if I were to march through this, just sea of cases and look for people who've had information about where these ETs are from, what you see are very coy, evasive answers. Uh, you know, I've got a number of these firsthand. Someone asked, where are you from? They said, it's not important. Another, you wouldn't understand. Uh, it's from a place you don't know about yet. Uh, and, you know, things like this. Uh, there's one case in the book, by the way, uh, Anne Witherspoon, she allowed her real name to be used. She had a fully conscious encounter, and they said, it finally came one day and explained everything. They're like, this is why we contacted you. We've been following your genetic line for thousands of years, you know, since biblical times. They said they were from a twin star system, not a binary, a twin. They showed her little symbols that described their planet uh, and uh, told her a bunch of stuff. <clears throat> Remarkable. Uh, we are sadly out of time, Preston, but you're always full value. Always appreciate spending time with us. And um, I, I encourage people to go out and get a copy of Onboard ufo encounters again they can order it through the website and uh, just uh, google preston dennett preston p-r-e-s-t-o-n dennett d-e-n-n-e-t-t you can also go to strangeplanet.ca slash conspiracy show and just click on preston's name there on the page it'll take you right to the website and you can uh, reach out to him by email from the website order an autographed copy and uh, he'll uh, he'll send that out to you. Onboard UFO Encounters, 15 never-before-published case studies. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you again, Preston. Great talking to you. Hey, always a pleasure. Thank you. 
All right, that's it for me. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you can be along for the ride. My thanks to Carlos Cagini and Ryan White for their assistance as always. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home or at least up the stairs. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.